So just a couple of announcements. Sometime in July, we'll be posting the information very soon. We'll be gathering again at Center Yoga if you'd like to join us in person. So I'm sure up at Center Yoga in New York City, their website will already have the information. I just haven't gotten it from them yet, but I should be posting it any day now. So if you'd like to sit with us, please consider that. And then if you'd like to go on a retreat with us in September from the 1st to the 5th, we'll be doing um, probably our 10th, I don't know how many years, uh, retreat at Garrison Institute. And it's great to be back teaching retreats in person. So um, I teach them with wonderful Jessica Mori and Kathy Cherry. And uh, so lots of great Buddhist and uh, attachment-based, psychology-based insights, and a very uh, beautiful place, uh, retreat, very lovely views, hiking trails, food, everybody gets their own room. If you're interested, just go on the Garrison Institute or go to dharmapunksnyc.com. And uh, if you'd like to support my work, which is only supported entirely by donation, I do everything, all the counseling and the teaching, just entirely by donation. So uh, not only do we have Venmo, and the address is Dharma Punks NYC for that, Dharma Punks with an X, and uh, the PayPal button's on the website, but some people who are fans of Patreon convinced me to start a Patreon page under the name Dharma Punks NYC, so... There's that as well. So hopefully you'll consider that if if my work is of some value to you. So thanks for that. And now tonight we're going to talk about concentration focus. The ability to develop focused attention is so inherently vital and fundamental to achieving our long-term goals. It's essential. It's completely uh, involved in regulating hyperactivity and regulating hypervigilance and also diminishing addiction to short-term pleasures. So all of uh, these important developments, uh, which are essentially developmental milestones of mat the maturing brain, uh, fall under the category of the ability to focus, which regulates hyperactivity, which regulates hypervigilance to an extent, which regulates our impulsive addictive behaviors, and which allows us to inhibit, uh, as we'll see, a certain kind of distracted attention in favor of focusing on tasks that are not immediately rewarding, but in the long-term result in positive achievements, goals, and uh, skills. And in Buddhist uh, Dharma, it involves two of the Eightfold Path, the first being right concentration, which is the ability to focus one's mind in a way that results in what the Buddha usually calls easeful abiding, which means just being present most of the time without too much anxiety. 
along with it helps us to develop wisdom, mindfulness, and the ending of craving. So right there we see that it's a kind of focused attention that allows us to relax, develop insights and wisdom, be aware of what's going on around us, and ending craving. And it also involves another Eightfold Path factor, which is right effort. Uh, and the Buddha defines right effort essentially as when one generates the desire and persistence necessary to develop skills and qualities that are not yet present in us. So it's a kind of attention and effort that allows us to cultivate all kinds of capabilities that are not uh, inherently uh, traits but are to our significant advantage and to also build self-esteem like for instance the ability to uh, complete um, skill development or an education or to learn uh, how to play an instrument or to draw or to cultivate any skill massively associated with self-esteem and also requires the ability to focus attention for a sustained period without being distracted. Now, uh, like anxiety disorders, attention deficits and hyperactivity is uh, highly disruptive to our lasting fulfillment. When individuals uh, are not successfully uh, develop the ability to inhibit the sort of innate distracted attention that we're all born with, we wind up with higher rates of substance abuse, incarceration, unemployment, and psychiatric conditions. And all these are characterized by inattention, poor impulse control, and increased motor activity, which means the in inability to inhibit and relax the body. So again, there's a direct uh, correlation between inattention, motor activity, poor impulse control, and terrible developmental outcomes like substance abuse, incarceration, unemployment, and so forth. So it's, uh, it's clearly an important skill throughout life to be able to focus and sustain attention on something that's not immediately rewarding. That's kind of how we educate ourselves, grow, that's how we develop new skills, that's how we go to uh, and learn how to do things that in the past we haven't been able to uh, accomplish. Now, I want to make a side note that this is not a talk specifically in any way about ADHD. And ADHD, while I'll talk a little bit about it, this is a far more general approach to just developing concentration and focus. ADHD brings up in and of itself challenges, placing it within whether it's a neurological or psychiatric disorder. Now, autism and dyspraxia, which is inability to move in a coordinated, easeful fashion, are neurological disorders, and they fall under the category of what's called neurodiversity, which is a term, I think that was first term uh, coined by Judy Singer, a sociologist sometime in the 1990s. And 
Her work was very much geared in a very positive way to expanding and extending our sense of what is a normal brain and encouraging us to be far more inclusive in the way we approach individuals with neurodivergence. ADHD is classified as a psychiatric disorder. All of us start out with attention deficits, and it's impossible really to even rule out individuals as not conclusively having ADHD. Given the fact that all of us start out essentially with attention deficits and hyperactivity, it's just the earliest and most natural state of the brain, it's impossible to conclusively say that ADHD in and of itself is a neurodivergent state. ADHD experts agree that it's a psychiatric disorder, so uh, I'm not going to come down on, on where to place it, but there's no doubt it involves both ADHD and attention deficits involve both some degree of genetics, but also very, very strong influence of one's early childhood experiences. In fact, studies that show that children who've had more than three adverse childhood experiences, i.e. traumas, abandonment, neglect, wind up with far higher uh, diagnosis of ADHD. And I find it inconclusive whether we would ever call ADHD purely neurodivergence because there's so many environmental factors and so many people by definition pretty much all of us at some stage or another have attention deficits now advances in neuroscience lead to a very strong conclusion which is that weaker we have the prefrontal cortex in our brain and its job is to regulate attention and to regulate behavior um, in early life, before our frontal lobes are fully wired, our attention is governed, up, governed by what's called bottom-up uh, midbrain circuits, which govern where we focus attention. And that creates one form of attention, which is uh, always chasing after what some psychologists call salient stimuli, which, stimuli, which means we look after any sound, any bright moving object, any body sensation, any iPhone ping will grab our attention. And that harkens back to our evolution. Uh, throughout most of evolution, it was to our advantage that any new sound or object we would attend to, because there was a high likelihood that they might actually be threats or they might actually have something to do with our survival. So we're all innately wired with this kind of bottom-up attention, which wants to orient all the time to what's the newest sound, the newest sensation, as well as to orient towards anything that might remotely be categorized as a reward or a threat. So we naturally will keep in mind and orient towards sweet things, towards food, towards... Uh, anything that activates pro-tribal concerns like your phone pinging you or an email coming in, even though paying attention to these things in no way help us achieve focus or achieve long-term goals. 
So these innate bottom-up circuits that orient us to any kind of novel present stimuli associated, however remotely, with reward, uh, fleeting rewards, such as the possibility of food or social media, text messages, are deeply wired to our tribal circuitry and to our evolution. They, har they harken back to our earliest environments where again being constantly attentive to anything new was imp was vital to our survival now today if we want to develop more refined skills and capabilities we have to be able to override this earlier ancient more primal form of attention to inhibit this constantly reorienting to where where is the food or where can I shop or where can I uh, should I check my social media my Facebook my Instagram this is requires a lot of things to go right developmentally for us to develop it in fact top-down circuits that inhibit the old form of of hyperactive uh, uh, distracted attention um, does this entirely by inhibiting bottom-up impulses and that's what allows us to develop skills that will be useful in the long term but are not useful immediately so for instance learning some people learn how to code a computer there's nothing innately uh, rewarding in the immediate present about learning to code in fact it seems to be, I don't know how to code, but it seems to be an endeavor that requires months upon months of exertion and focus and concentration before you can even do even the most basic program. So that requires a lot of top-down inhibiting of distractions, inhibiting of hyperactivity, and that requires us to what's called gate, or shunt out of awareness those external non-essential stimuli even though they're associated with immediate fleeting rewards like having a snack or texting someone or checking our emails or looking what's up at social media to achieve anything lasting and a long-term goal we have to be able to inhibit those fleeting attractions to a degree so the prefrontal cortex allows us to sustain our attention even under what's called dull situations and so situations that are not immediately rewarding like for instance uh, taking a course in a foreign language or uh, again coding or learning to play an instrument I play quite a number of instruments and I can tell you there's this long long stage in learning to play an instrument which I call the I suck stage where no matter how much I practice it sounds terrible on a new instrument so to be able to do that uh, and to learn an instrument I one has to be able to inhibit distractions inhibit short-term pleasures inhibit uh, concerns about immediate threats and sustain attention so that's all engaged and invo involves our prefrontal cortex 
and it involves it means we have to inhibit the more primal earlier form of attention which just always wants to uh, orient to what's new and novel now one of the ways the frontal cortex does this is it relies on two neurotransmitters that are associated with attention and reward attention is largely associated with norepinephrine which is also um, a form of adrenaline in the brain and also dopamine so both norepinephrine or adrenaline and dopamine stimulate the frontal lobe and these allow the frontal lobe to inhibit the older bottom-up innate forms of distracted attention so if we have weak signaling of dopamine or adrenaline in the frontal lobe especially dopamine it will make it more difficult to inhibit the uh, this older more distracted more novelty seeking more immediate reward seeking attention now common treatments for people with deficits in attention in childhood very often especially those diagnosed with ADHD involve therapeutic doses of stimulants which increase both norepinephrine and dopamine there you go it helps the the frontal lobe inhibit those older forms of attention bottom-up attention as it's called um, so what are these treatments well you've heard of them they're commonly known as Adderall Ritalin Dexedrin Concerta Vivance there's another medication that's not a stimulant uh, the, the all the ones I just named Adderall Ritalin Dexedrin Concerta Vivance are stimulants and Adderall is chemically very similar to amphetamines and cocaine so obviously there's a lot of problematic issue with diagnosing and treating people with um, stimulants I should note that Stratera which is a treatment for attention deficits is not a stimulant so uh, it's the one uh, medicine that has been shown to be effective without being a uh, directly upregulating dopamine it works in a different way so ongoing prescriptions can result in enhanced attention and many lives have been transformed for the better by taking medication individuals who are successfully treated for ADHD and attention deficits have lesser rates of unemployment substance abuse incarceration and there's all these studies that show overall there's a cost benefit of suggesting that medicinal treatments do by and large very often work but and here's the big but and the but we should really pay attention to the evidence of over prescription of stimulants is extreme believe it or not 80 percent of diagnoses of children from 4 to 17 of 
attention deficit will lead to the prescription of a stimulant. Which means that 4 million children are kept taking stimulants on an ongoing basis. And by the time uh, we're adults, 16 million U.S. adults use stimulants every year that are prescribed and 20% of college students abuse these ADHD medications. One out of five college students abuse them. It's an enormous amount. On top of that, uh, one out of every four individuals who's prescribed stimulants will use their prescriptions primarily to get high and not actually in a way that addresses their attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity. So you might want to ask, by the way, why is it that taking a stimulant actually inhibits hyperactivity? Well, guess what? In allowing the prefrontal cortex uh, to function better, it inhibits the bottom-up hyperactivity. So even though we associate stimulants with being hyperactive, actually, if you get the medication just right, you can inhibit the hyperactive motor movements in and of themselves. So, um, new, new research shows that long-term use of Ritalin, Adderall, and stimulants result, unfortunately, in decreased brain plasticity in, in, as we get older. And so the formation of new memories and routines actually over a long period of time become hindered. They're also associated with cognitive problems over the long term of flexibility and regulating emotions. Adderall, which is closest to speed when taken over a number of years, leads to higher incidence of depression, irritability, and aggression, and insomnia. So all of these medications, when used as a bridge until we develop behavioral strategies and cognitive strategies, can be useful. But if we rely on them, for a long duration over time, the costs can override the benefits. And there's, I've worked with quite a number of, of individuals who've been significantly over the course of 20 years or more use of stimulants now can't fall asleep without taking uh, medication regimes struggle with extreme inability to develop impulse control, uh, have anxiety disorders, and so forth. So I think it's clearly best to use any form of medication just as a bridge until we develop the cognitive and behavioral skills to develop frontal lobe inhibition naturally, which it's very capable of doing. Now, adenosine is a big culprit in an inability to focus the mind. What's adenosine? It's actually yet a, another neurochemical that it, essentially what it does is help us fall asleep. It also helps inhibit the immune system and it increases blood flow. And sometimes it's useful to inhibit immune function. But 
One of the bad outcomes, there's many bad outcomes of adenosine, we'll talk about it, but one of the bad outcomes is that it blocks dopamine and glutamate. And if we don't get enough sleep, there's still too much adenosine present. We, therefore, in the mornings, very often find it difficult to focus. And so what do people do? Well, they drink caffeine and... Uh, caffeine actually uh, immediately uh, uh, leads to the degeneration of adenosine and builds up the secretion of dopamine. So once again, the frontal lobe can focus attention, talk, answer, you know, develop uh, focused attention on something we needed to get done. Essentially, caffeine reverses the effects of adenosine and adenosine is rever is it's good to reverse the effects of adenosine because it's can be pretty terrible it's associated with depression alzheimer's disease parkinson's epilepsy and it's a immunosuppressant and it's very often found around tumors and cancers so while we need it to fall asleep too much that lingers for too long inhibits our immune system, allows cancers to grow, and also compromises the hippocampus so that we are more prone to Alzheimer's disease. So you might ask, how do I develop my attention and block adenosine? Well, one, of course, is getting enough sleep. If you get enough sleep, there, the adenosine wears off while you're, you're asleep for seven or eight hours and it stops the levels from becoming too high. So people who sleep longer generally are able to sustain their attention and they are not as prone to inflammatory diseases and they're not as prone to depression or enhanced anxiety or, you know, all the other negative outcomes. So get enough sleep. That's a big thing. Um, anything that's high on theobromine helps us focus. So if you want to naturally develop greater focus, of course, one thing that's very high in theobromine is coffee. Uh, but if you don't like coffee, and in coffee, by the way, in small doses, two cups or less a day is a significant source of fiber, it actually helps prevent heart disease, but if you don't like it, you don't like it. Some people find it makes them kind of anxious. So what are the alternatives? Well, tea, cocoa, chocolate, and yerba mate all have theobromine and help clear adenosine so that we can focus, we can uh, attend to tasks, we can develop right concentration. Taking zinc daily actually uh, helps disperse adenosine. Zinc is also great for the immune system. And if you drink too much, you have far more uh, adenosine that, and it, you are far more, will struggle to focus attention and develop new skills. So it also leads to many other disinhibitory outcomes. So I don't recommend alcohol consumption. If you do, do it in moderation. Now, what are the behavioral ways we can increase our attention, our focus, and help us achieve long-term goals? Well, one study shows that 
people who do easily focus find ways to either make the tasks that they're engaged with more immediately rewarding or b they can visualize and make the long-term uh, outcomes of this task seem far far more uh, clear and tangible let me break that down because that's a little bit difficult to follow. If you want to be able to sustain attention better, there's two immediate behaviors that will do that. One is associate whatever task you want to focus on with a short-term reward that you'll give yourself at the end. Let me give you an example of that. When I was writing my book, Unsubscribe, I at first sat down right after I signed the contract with uh, <clears throat> the Simon & Schuster imprint to do it. And I looked at the contract and it said I had to write 250 pages. And I have to tell you, up until that point in my life, when I was in my 50s, I had never written anything longer than 10 pages in my life. That was the longest paper I had ever written. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? And it was very, very difficult to concentrate on writing a page or two every day because I was easily distracted. The stress of it and the fact that I hadn't I was not a writer, so I hadn't developed yet the ability to focus fully on writing. I mean, I'd written a lot of magazine articles for Buddha, various Buddhist magazines like Tricycle and Lion's Roar and Buddha Dharma, but I had never written a book. And so I couldn't, it was difficult at first to sustain my focus on sitting and trying to write something where, where there'd be chapters that would be 20 pages long and there would be a book that would be 250 pages long. So what I would do was I immediately associated any writing without, I removed any self-criticism whatsoever. I never in any way uh, criticized what I wrote. I never evaluated it. I would just write. And then every day that I would write anything, whether it was a word or five words or you know, two pages, no matter what, if I did any, if I sat down, even if nothing came up, I would reward myself by doing an activity that I really enjoyed. Now, I didn't do anything addictive like um, spend lots of money or stuff like that. I generally reward myself by going to a website that I like spending time that's purely distracting for me. Sometimes I read uh, websites on gossiping about which teams in English soccer will trade which players. Completely of no long-term value whatsoever, but being an old soccer fan, it simply was an immediate reward. So after I wrote, no matter how good or bad, I would simply allow myself 20 minutes to sit and read one of these English sporting news things. Then I would go out and very often eat my favorite lunch <clears throat> at my favorite uh, nearby 
a healthy vegetarian place, I would allow myself to relax, do things that I enjoyed. So what I'm saying is the compulsion to seek instant gratification isn't all bad if we put the instant gratification after the focus task. If we always go to the instant gratification instead of the task that demands focused attention, then it's terrible. Then it comes at the expense of developing skills and developing wisdom and developing the ability to inhibit hyperactivity. But if instead we use immediate gratifications as a way to reward us after we've done a half an hour, an hour, whatever amount of focused activity, then instant gratifications aren't necessarily all bad. Sometimes I would go to the uh, local secondhand store and look at a hoodie or something. I don't buy new clothes because it's terrible for the environment, but I'd go out, look at some secondhand clothes. I would uh, watch some soccer. I'd listen to music on YouTube. And all of these instant gratifications for me, when put after the sustained attention, actually made the sustained attention more rewarding. Now, another way that people focus attention and develop that skill, a study shows that they visualize in their mind how a task will improve their life. So they visualize themselves in the distant future having achieved a task they visualize their life as being profoundly, in some tangible way, uh, you know, more fulfilling or something like this. Is this a, an intrinsically Buddhist approach? No, but it's still very helpful. For instance, when I was a kid and I didn't have very sustained attention, to say the very least, uh, I desperately wanted to play, to learn how to play an instrument because all the other kids at school that learned how to play instruments got the attention of girls and were very popular. So it seemed like an important thing to do. So what I would do is I would uh, visualize myself many years in the future playing in a band on stage to the adulation of many people listening in the audience. And just that visualization, visualization actually, guess what? It secretes dopamine. So it makes it actually easier to concentrate over a long period. So I was once talking with somebody who had learned by themselves how to code uh, this very difficult coding language. I can't code for the life of me. I've w once or twice in my life tried to sit down and see if I could do that. And immediately, within 30 seconds, I'm so distracted, I just chuck in the whole thing. So I asked this individual how they did it, and they said they simply visualized over a long term how their life would be improved. They visualized themselves writing a program that would be on iPhones or whatever and would get them a lot of positive attention. So this brings us to meditation. There's so much clinical research showing that even 
a meditation practice of 20 minutes a day improves the gray matter in the frontal lobe, allowing us to focus attention and reduces hyperactivity. You could look at the work of the Lazar Lab at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital or the UCLA Mindfulness Center, which has a special uh, uh, wing and research to developing attention. And all the studies show that the more, if we just develop 20 minutes a day, just sitting and practicing bringing the mind back again and again and again to any topic, it can be uh, extremely helpful not only in regulating the amygdala and hyperactivity, but it builds the frontal lobe up, which not only inhibits old uh, impulses that are just you know much more distracted but it also increases memory function it's been shown to be very protective against alzheimer's disease and so forth so one of the ways to develop a concentration or meditation practice is to focus on things that are rewarding or feel good people think oh the only way to meditate is by focusing on the breath but actually the Buddha and some of the key suttas of the Pali Canon said, sit down in a secluded place and bring your attention to a sensation in the body that feels pleasant, that feels good. So the idea that all uh, meditation has to be just on a neutral object like the breath isn't actually true. The Buddha actually talked about sukha or pleasantness or easeful, pleasant sensations as being key. So if we want to be able to develop this vital skill, meditating 20 minutes a day, just bringing your attention back again and again to the most pleasant sensation in your body and finding a way to, without any self-judgment, right, we don't want to associate focused attention with anything negative. So you, we never judge or criticize ourselves when our minds wander. We just bring it back again and again to a pleasant sensation. And over time, it develops the frontal lobe's ability to inhibit that ancient distracted attention system. So that's all I'm going to ramble on about this topic tonight. And now we're actually going to do a meditation that actually helps us develop focused concentration. So I hope that that was of some interest to you. And so find your most comfortable position if you want to lie on a yoga mat or sit on a sofa or lie down on a bed, or there's no expectation for me that you hold a rigid uh, med upright meditation posture. If that feels good for you, by all means, do it. So what we're going to do is we're going to close our eyes, and we are going to just bring our awareness into our body, and when we do this, 
we are going to find, as I noted, a sensation that immediately feels pleasant or easy to focus our attention on. Now, if you bring your attention into your body and you just can't find any pleasant sensation, you, there's no place, not even the palms of your hands or your eyes or um, somewhere else in your body doesn't feel at all pleasant, then just close your eyes, but rest your attention on the sounds arising and passing in your environment. And we're going to set an intention that at no point in this practice are we going to criticize or evaluate ourselves. At no point are we going to judge ourselves if our attention, if the old ancient bottom up attention grabs hold of our focus and it chases after. Uh, some memory or thought that's associated with a short-term pleasure, like maybe I should get up and get something to eat, or maybe I should just do X, Y, or Z. So we're not going to judge or evaluate. We're just going to notice, and when that happens, we're just going to smile because that old form of attention is just a part of us. It's like an inner child wanting to distract us. And so we're not going to judge that inner child. We're just going to say, I see you. And then we're going to gently bring our focus back to a task that's actually going to be beneficial for us in the long term. So we're going to just practice bringing the mind back again and again to any sensation which will be our anchor. It anchors our attention. So that, again, might be a sound or it might be a pleasant sensation in your body. If neither of those work, just sim think of a very simple phrase and repeat that simple phrase in your mind. I love you, keep going. Or may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of suffering. The words don't matter. It's just repeating the phrase over and over. So we're just going to practice sitting here and developing our frontal lobe and when we meditate, it increases dopamine secretion, which helps the frontal lobe. So we're just going to keep training our frontal lobes, developing that ability to focus attention. We're going to do that without any criticism, any frustration. Every time your mind wanders and you note that and you bring it back to either a pleasant sensation 
in your body, maybe the palms of your hands. That's wonderful. That's deepening the inhibitory circuits in your frontal lobe. That's actually wiring your brain for the better. Give yourself a nice reward of a really soothing breath. Or visualize the long-term rewards in your mind of achieving focus, easeful focus. Visualize yourself in the future being calmer, being more able to develop new skills and new capabilities. Visualize yourself being less anxious, being able to settle easier. So if you want, every time your mind wanders and you bring it back, just hold in mind a, ple a pleasant long-term outcome. Or promise yourself after you meditate that you'll engage in an activity that's both enjoyable but not addictive.
So for the last couple of minutes, just really just try to settle and relax into the present without any resistance, any wishing that we could have anything else present. Just, but don't try to do anything other than relax and just be present and just keep bringing the mind back. Just a couple, minute or two of just really refining that capability of bringing back our attention again and again. So just taking your time and letting go of whatever you've been bringing your attention back to. You don't have to push it out of mind, but just bringing back awareness to the external environment, 